0: everything that we think, the way we think it, and then making our thoughts God's thoughts. The rest that takes care of itself. And last week, we finished our section uh, with some of the great principles on, uh, you know, uh, dealing uh, with families. We talked about children robbing their fathers and the mothers of the honor out of Exodus chapter 20. And then we talked about moms and dads robbing their kids of that time of innocence uh, that God has uh, put in their lives to train them uh, with the way God wants them to be. And, in, you know, from both cases, what happens is is the families now get robbed of the blessings of God in ministry together, uh, you know, as a family. We talked about, uh, you know, the principle of short-term and long-term. And so many people just look at the short-term of things. You know, a father right now, short-term, should look at his, his family as his church. He's the pastor of his family. He should pastor them and teach them and train them. That's short-term. Uh, long term is he needs to see the generations that follow, how that he is to build his family to, uh, to that unbroken chain of ministering together down through the next generations. You know, we saw clearly how that God's plan on the Old Testament and also the New Testament was reaching, fam- uh, reaching the world through families within a New Testament local church structure. Last week, <coughs> we talked about my obligation, my duty, you know, as a pastor. And also your duty, if you're teaching anybody the Word of God, we talked about Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, (coughs) where it says that we're to give you acceptable words, gracious words, to give you knowledge and to set (coughs) in order many Proverbs. And we talked about how that that is exactly what we try to do with the Bible. We try to take the principles and lay them out so you can have them and understand how that... uh, you should work through it. Bear with me here. I swallowed sideways. <coughs> and then we talked about how that the Word of God is like nails, and it it nails things down for us that otherwise we wouldn't understand how to deal with it. But at the same time, many times it nails us, and we need to be nailed. And we talked about, you know, setting in order uh, those principles so you don't have to follow your own heart. And that really was the key last week, and to walk after the the heart of God. We talked about a principled life, you know, changing the attitude, not just the action. And, uh, you know, the greatest example of that (coughs) anywhere in the Bible, getting God's heartbeat, we have talked about this before, this is certainly nothing new, but just to put it in remembrance, is the Apostle John. He is one of the greatest pictures in all of the Bible of what our relationship should be. His writings are probably more unique than any other writer in the the whole Bible. Because when he writes, and he writes five books of the Bible, which just happen to be the five wisdom books of the New Testament, which you have five wisdom books of the Old Testament, he writes clearly from his position having everything else in the New Testament before him. And he writes from a unique perspective. He, he he writes from an Old Testament Jew coming up through, you know, the time of Christ into the Church Age and becoming, you know, one of the greatest pictures of what your life and my life should be. It's in John chapter thirteen, verse twenty-five, that we are told that there at the Last Supper, uh, that uh, which was our Arthur Bryant's, by the way, Alex. I want you to know that they they were all sitting there, and the Bible says that he leans over and he. He lays his head on the very breast of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's a tremendous principle. Most people don't get it. They don't see it. John did something that no other man in the Bible did. He actually physically heard the heartbeat of God. And I've often thought about that, you know, that he's a type of the church. And the church today is the only other body down through history of believers that can actually do that. You can hear the heartbeat of God because the heartbeat of God is, is the Word of God. Back in Song of Sodom, and I, I just bumped into this one day about twenty-five years ago, and I never forgot it. You know, I always knew the Song of Sodom was a picture of my relationship with Christ and all the things that uh I'm to have. But in Song of Solomon chapter two, it's one of the most personal chapters about Christ coming, looking at me, loving me, and then coming in the rapture to uh to take me out. And uh, in Song of Sodom in chapter two, verse six. It's describing my love relationship with him and him with me. And he says there in 2 6, his left hand is under my head and his right hand doth embrace me. You know, I must have read that for the first 20 years of my Christian life and never really understood the impact of that compared to John. Because John laid it, John is sitting on the right hand, he lays his head on the breast of Jesus. And in Song of Solomon 2 6, for you and for me, it says, his left hand, Christ, is under. My head and his right hand doth embrace me. that is a picture of John laying across and hearing the heartbeat of god that 's where every one of us should be today, hearing the heartbeat of almighty god and uh, so we closed out uh, that uh, uh, that section and we 're going to deal with the last two verses here uh, in chapter twenty eight today uh, in our verses today we'll again we 're going to just add some more principles about the Christian life that you can add to the list that we've already had as we've been coming through uh, the book of Proverbs. Now here, I'm going to read these two verses and then we're going to come back and we're going to kind of look at it here. It says, He that giveth unto the poor shall not lack, but he that hideth his eyes shall have many a curse. When the wicked rise, men hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous uh, increase. Paul, you're sitting right there in the front. Would you stand up and ask God blessing on the Preaching this morning for me. Now, verse 27 says, He that giveth unto the poor shall not lack, but he that hideth his eyes shall have uh, many a curse. Now the verse is dealing with the poor, and uh, uh, there are several important things that we want to take time to note out of this this morning, uh, and it's found in this verse. First of all, allow me to tell you that doctrinally, uh, this is a picture of the nation of Israel, the Jew in the tribulation period. When you come through the Bible, you'll find that one of the key words is the word poor. But every time you find that, you want to stop and look at it. I'm not going to say 100% of the time, but I would say probably 90%. Percent of the time, either directly or indirectly through a type, it'll be talking about the nation of Israel, who is very poor when it comes to the rest of the world as far as, uh, you know, uh, being uh, uh, taken advantage of by the world. And they are defined all through the Bible. If I remember right, there's 37 references in Psalms, and I think there's also 37 references to them in Proverbs, uh, in reference to the poor, and every one of them in those cases will be the nation of Israel. In Matthew chapter 5 through 10, we have what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. It's there that Jesus says, blessed is the poor in spirit, and he's talking about the nation of Israel. In Matthew chapter 25, there's a story. We'll come back and talk about it in just a little bit. Uh, A story about somebody in the tribulation period helping the Jew. And it's very obvious when you read it that they're very poor and they need the help of somebody to get them through. Now, historically... Uh, it will be the man uh, of our context of chapter twenty eight we 've been talking about him the last couple of weeks he 's the guy who uh, uh, basically is a respecter of persons. He caters to the rich and the famous, but he uh, holds the poor in disdain and wouldn 't walk across the street to to help them and uh, As the verse says, he hides his eyes from them and We made no bones about it that this is probably ninety five percent of the pastors in churches today that cater to the rich and famous because, you know, they think that they got a lot of money and the pastor's always got some grand scheme and you all know, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. And that's the whole mindset. But inspirationally, and this is where I want to focus on it today, it will deal with one of the greatest principles that Jesus ever taught, whether it's doctrinally or inspirationally. And it's a principle that uh, he himself followed and set the example for us, and that is taking care of, of the poor. You've heard me say it many times, the importance of a balance in a Christian's life, and there's no question about that. Last week, I I talked to, you know, uh, about the book of Philippians, and I told you that there were nine valuable principles in the book of Philippians that if you didn't have any other part of the Bible and all you had was that book, you could take those nine principles and those nine principles will... Uh, put in the right place, will form the balance of any child of God. There are nine incredible principles. We've talked about it before on Bible study, except it's been been a while since we have did that. You know, Philippians uh, is the best church in the New Testament. And uh, Paul writes to all the other churches, and he always has something that he has to correct them on or deal with them on. You're going to notice that he doesn't do that with the Philippian church. They are a good, well-balanced church. <clears throat> so because of that, you find these nine great principles that if you put them into your life and live by them, you know, it, it pretty much will take care of everything in life. And, you know, most pastors would agree that, <clears throat> that the, uh, you know, the, uh, with the concept of a Christian being uh, balanced, and uh, they would understand that, and I'm sure they, most of them would agree that. Yet what happens is that they, they may agree with that, but they fail to see that their own church needs to have a balance. A balance just isn't for you. A church needs to have a balance, you know, for me, I, I see in, in the Word of God, and I try to take every component <clears throat> that will fit the balance this church. Because, you know, you know when you drive down the road in your car, and you've got four tires that are out of balance, you you got them in for a bumpy ride. And I'll tell you something else. As an individual, you go through life out of balance, and you're in for a bumpy ride. And I'll tell you one thing else, you take a church that's got four tires out of balance, and uh, you're in for a bumpy ride there too. And it's a thing where as the church grows, the balance will change. As you grow, the balances in your life will change. It may, it may keep the same principles that you got starting out, but you're going to add to them as you increase and develop yourself, and that's true, that's true of churches too. Uh, you know, I, I, I understand that. Uh, there, there has to be a balance between uh, preaching and teaching. You know, you, you come to the place where uh, it's a thing where um, preaching and, and teaching, you find a lot of churches where all the guy wants to do is teach and he never preaches. Then you find the other guys who all they want to do is scream and yell and preach and they never teach. You've got to have a balance in that. There's a balance between pastoring and preaching, I've observed that all my life, you know, been in the ministry, and I've said this many, many times, most pastors that are good pastors, most of the time they're not very good preachers. And most really good preachers don't make very good pastors. You find somebody that can do both, that has a balance, that can, can do both of those, and that's what you're looking for. You know, there's a balance between grace and truth. You have to be able to give people grace, but you have to hold them accountable to some degree with the truth. There's a balance in that. In preaching itself, there comes a balance. Every heresy in the body of Christ and without the body of Christ has gotten in and did its damage because of the unbalance of between the doctrinal, the inspirational, and historical application of the Scriptures. You've got to have that balance. Uh, there has to be a balance in music. And, uh, you know, most churches are completely out of balance when it, it comes to uh, to music. There has to most certainly be a balance in ministry. You know, uh, I've learned over the years and, you know, almost 50 years now, I, and I've been associated with just most Baptist churches. Most Baptist churches run their ministry by tradition, Baptist tradition. The Baptists have set down for what now? I don't know, since the 40s or the 50s. Anyhow, With J. Frank Norris, when he broke out of the Southern Baptist Convention and the independent movement started... Uh, They set down a, we talk about tradition, you know, and the Catholics have traditions and the Methodists. But I want to tell you something, (laughs) some of the biggest traditions you ever saw in your life are Baptists. They follow their mindset and they think that, uh, you know, that if you don't do it this way, then God is not uh, connected with it you know, they, they, they've, been, they've been brainwashed with the aspect that you got to have a Sunday school and then you have a church service and then, you know, you have a Sunday night service and then you have a Wednesday night service. And I've had people call me on the phone and ask about the church and say, what time is your Sunday night service? And, they, and I just say, well, we don't have a Sunday night service. And immediately you can hear the apostate attendance come up. You know, they think we're all dying and going to hell because we don't have a Sunday night service. You know, it never dawned on them that, you know, in most of their mindsets with their churches, they teach to people Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Lord knows when else. When is the time that you as a church go out and minister to people? And, of course, I've decided, that, you know, I've never been a traditionalist. Uh, you know, uh, you know, we, have a, we don't have a Wednesday night church service. I have a Thursday night Bible study. And uh, I get more done on my Thursday night Bible study for two hours. And you get on Wednesday night with a bunch of people that don't really want to be there. They just came because they know you'd be knocking on their door if you didn't. Because you're not giving them anything. Pastors like to manipulate people. They like to intimidate people. I had a guy one time preaching and he said to the congregation, he says, you'll tell what a people thinks about their their church uh, when they show up on Sunday morning. Then you'll find out what people think about their pastor when they show up on, on Sunday night. And then you'll find out what they think about the Lord when they show up on Wednesday night. That's about as goofy as I've ever heard in my life. But that's what they do today. You know why? They're traditionalists. You go to most Baptist churches, every time they preach a sermon, they give an invitation. You know, and they sing 28 stanzas, of Just As I Am, and when that doesn't work, then they'll shift over to uh, Have Thine o Way, Lord, uh, and when that doesn't work, they'll shift over to uh, the Yellow Rose of Texas or something like that. I don't know. But it's a thing where that's tradition, see? That, you know what tradition does? Tradition locks out the Holy Spirit of God, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I don't want to get locked into anything except the Word of God. And uh, you get into the New Testament. There's no Sunday night service. There's no Wednesday night service. You know what you do? You do what works to reach people. I'd much rather take a 100 of you out this afternoon and and ministering to people and witnessing to people. I'd much have 30 of you discipling somebody on Wednesday night all through this city. They're just coming in here and sitting down and giving you more Bible. You get more Bible here than any place on this planet. That's not the problem. You know what the problem is? Getting you to do something with it. And that's where it has to be. But that's where churches are. <clears throat> they're, they're traditionalized today. You know, and it's a, it's a great answer to why, you know, here anyhow, I do the things that, uh, you know, that I do. Uh, many times uh, I feel like that insurance guy, you know. I know a thing or two because I saw a thing or two. And, and, and that's so true. I have watched half of a century almost in churches what works and what doesn't work. And I'm not going to waste any more time doing things that don't work when I know what will work. And it's it's just one of those things where uh, that's just the way it is. And in doing that, you know, I will follow the patterns and the principles of the three areas that are really laid out in the scriptures for what a church ought to be. And, uh, you know, the first one is the church at Antioch. Church in Antioch is where they're first called Christians. To me, the church of Antioch is invaluable. It would be Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 12 <clears throat> because it's in the church of Antioch that you see the structure of the church. You get to see the mindset of the church. And, uh, you know, it tells you there that one of the greatest keys to ministry that most churches never get, certainly most Christians never get it, they're ministering to the Lord first. And if you'd ask the average pastor what that means, he couldn't tell you. He couldn't tell you. And, of course, that's, my, that's where I go first. To put my bow. Then the second one is the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. You're going to find that Acts chapter 20, Paul's farewell address to the church at Ephesus before he goes down to Jerusalem. <clears throat> it's one of the greatest places anywhere in the Bible. And when you study it and look at it, you'll see that there's six things that Paul tells that church they're supposed to do. And where the Acts chapter 11 and 12 and 13 give you the mindset of the church, uh, Ephesians chapter 20 shows you the ministry of the church. And it shows you the balance. Then the third thing, finally, will be the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He spends 33 years on this earth, but the last three and a half in his public ministry. And uh, it's it's incredible. And uh, there's so many things that you can learn from it. And, of course, we got the heretics today that pop up, you know, the hyper-dispensationalists and all that crowd that says that we are not to follow, uh, you know, the words uh, in the gospel that are not for us. And they get so hyper over it that all they do, they throw out everything else in the New Testament and just take Paul's. And then when that doesn't work, they even cut some of that out. And, of course, you know, that's, that's heresy to anybody that knows the Bible. But that's just the way it is today. So there are many lessons in all of these. And, you know, and it forms for us a balance. And as you grow, you have to reshape your balance. As this church grows, we have to reshape the balance. You know, uh, when the Lord showed up at the first coming of Christ, uh, we can list a lot of problems with the nation of Israel. But you know what the bottom line fundamental problem was? They are totally out of balance. They've lost sight of everything that God gave them in the Old Testament. And the reason why they have done that is because the, the whole religious system of Israel had been given over during that captivity time, in those 400 silent years, and the scribes and the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees showed up. Now, both those groups are non-biblical groups. They show up around 160 B.C., 167 for one of the other groups. The scribes who were biblical are totally corrupt. And what they do is they completely destroy everything that God gave to the nation of Israel, and at the first coming of Christ, the nation of Israel is completely out of balance. And what Christ does in his most simplistic form is he tries to bring them back to some form of balance about God and the Word of God, and him being their Messiah. And I've watched that, you know, and we talk about the lessons of history, or maybe I should say not learning the lessons of history. But the church today is also completely out of balance. The great parallels between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And uh, our modern day scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees have done the same thing that they did to the nation of Israel. And pastors today, instead of building some dynasty or some monument to themselves, uh, should be trying to restore that balance and get back to what the New Testament is really all about and that would be people and training them and building them as families but in both cases, as we find in verse 28, Jesus was always caring about the poor. Again, the scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't. They were they loved the upper roast rooms at the synagogue. They liked to wear the long robes and be seen of men walking down the street. They liked to be seen praying and give out the prayers that they were really spiritual. They didn't care about the people that Jesus really came to, to minister to. And you know, when you study it, the apostles fell into that same trap. And it's an easy trap to fall into because, uh, you know, uh, the problem with a church that gives you so much Bible, any church, the problem with the church that just gives you the Word of God, the Word of God, and the Word of God, and you get all fat and sassy about it, the bottom line is you can enjoy the, the blessings of God so much that you lose your perspective. The blessings of God are a great thing, but they can be a bad thing too because you get so caught up in the blessings you lose sight of who you really are and that's not that's when you're out of balance. I mean it's just that simple. And uh you know today it just so happens and I didn't plan this but it just worked out this way is our restart Sunday. Uh the two days a month that we you know take and uh, dedicate to going out and and taking care of the poor and uh, and uh, throughout the city and do what we can do. And to me, it's always formed a great balance. And I'm going to talk about it in two formats. But for me, it, it forms a great balance in part of what we do here. You know, I, I've i tried to strategically build ministries that will be profitable to your spiritual growth and also to evangelism. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, we... we uh, Chris was out last night with the guys down in Westport doing the street preaching ministry and they do a phenomenal job down there. We have a counseling ministry where you people work with me in the people ministry and we work with people who have issues and people who have problems. We have our sports ministry that is basically an outreach. Volleyball coming up here after the first of the year and softball, you know, and then of course Zach's deal like the uh, the flag football or the kickball or the things that we do or dodgeball or whatever it is. Um, and, and those are the things that we do to try to bring people in, young people, and try to get them. You know, it's a thing where we have our camp and our youth ministry that Zach and Jenny head up, and so many of you help them with him. We're coming up, you know, we have our special events coming up on New Year's Eve. We're having our Bad Attitude Baptist Blowout, you know. We'll take all night long that night and just preach the Word of God and sing and have a great time and get preached to. We have our prayer groups on Saturday, uh, Sunday morning that we some One hundred and fifty people meeting up there all around and, 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 and building people and building relationships and praying you know we have we have our you know our Sunday morning obviously and our Thursday night and you know our bible institute and and all the different uh, our people ministry and all the things that we do. We have our website and you know our bookstore and, and youtube and you know it's been an incredible thing i, I I hadn't told anybody this other than just a few people. Uh, Thursday night when I was teaching Bible study, I had my, my cell phone in my pocket and had it on on vibrate and a, it, I felt it vibrate going off and obviously wasn't going to do it then. But I forgot about it. And at, as I was getting in my car to go home, I remembered and I thought, I better check it in case somebody, you know, uh, you know, needs me. And I looked at it and it was a private call. But they had left me a message. So I... I took the message, and it was hard to hear, uh, but it was uh, Mike Veach from New York up in Mel Sabaca's old church. And he was telling me that, he says, Bob, this is Mike Veach. He says, I want you to know I'm in the Philippines right now. And he said, I just wanted to call and tell you that uh, we just finished a week with 200 pastors from 200 churches throughout the Philippines. And I wanted to call and thank you. I wanted to thank you because he had... Asked me when I went up there to preach the 50th anniversary, or the fortieth anniversary a couple of years ago. But you went with me. Uh, you know, he saw our material that we had that we put out through the books and everything. And, and uh, he wanted to buy them. He wanted, and I told him, I said, Mike, I said, I'm not selling them to you. I said, we'll send up what we have. You do whatever you want to do with it. You print it off yourself. If it's, you can use it, Fine. I don't want to dime for it. You just take it and use it. Well, anyway, what he told me there, he says, I just wanted you to know and thank you for graciously letting it. He said, we took three of your books and we formed the basic Bible teaching curriculum for 200 pastors in the Philippines. One of them was the 20 lies about the King James Bible. Another one was how to rightly divide uh, the Word of God. And I think the other one, the third one, it was hard to hear. It was how to study the Bible. And he wanted me to know that, <clears throat> that basically uh, Old Pass Baptist Church has just invaded the Philippines. <laughs> and, you know, and uh, all week long, I, uh, I didn't say a lot about it. I just, you know, I just, I just thought, you know, I, in my mind, I could just see. Because i was in been in the Philippines, you know. I know how it is over there. And I saw <clears throat> some little Filipino pastor sitting out there in a the bush someplace in a, in a hut, you know, or just a little thatch house sitting at a table with a candle going through that material. Uh, you know what? It, it's, it's because of you. It's because of his church. It, it has nothing to do with me. I mean, you could get a trained monkey to do what I do. It's you guys that took that material. It's John Biscette who works a 40-hour week at Ford and disciples four or five people who takes and, and makes those books. It's you ladies here and you guys who proofread for him that you, you, you go over that stuff and, and actually make me look good. Because you know, my grammar isn't the best in the world. You cut out all the cuss words. Sometimes you don't have much left in the book. <laughs> and it's the thing it's you. It's this church. You're the one who does it. And of course you reach out and you you make this stuff available. And now here, you know, he sends me this thing. I had no idea that what God was doing with that. And now here's two hundred churches in the Philippines. And now and he said they just love the material. It was so well received. They're dying to get material that is based on the Bible that'll take a stand on the King James Bible. And I'm telling you, I'm just telling you. And it's because of you. It's because of you and your faithfulness of allowing us to do that and being part of that and working through that system that just, uh, that makes those things happen. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, that the name the, the title I told I was preaching one time and I talked about how that I, I give more stuff away and how the bookstore is always running in the red. And because and so she she listened and she made a little sign and sent it to me that said the little red Bible bookstore. And uh, yeah, because you know what? Bottom line is this freely give freely to receive. How in the world can I honestly, I mean, I know we got costs in making it and things like that, but you know what? If if somebody wanted, some pastor, and they had that, can we use your book? You'd have to pay them uh, for every book that you use. Are you kidding me? God gave it to me free. I'm going to charge you for what God gave me? Are you out of your mind? What planet do you live on? And, of course, that's what it comes down to. I I ain't told anybody this. I got a call last week from a guy out in the West Coast who runs the Last Fight radio uh, program. And, uh, I mean, it's a, I looked at his website. He's got a pretty good radio deal out there, and he wants us to put, he listens to the website. He wants to put our preaching stuff on, on his website out there on the radio program. And it's a thing where, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's because you form the balance of what we have here. You do all the work. I mean, uh, you know, it's a thing where you have gravitated to the Word of God, you fell in love with the Word of God, and now all of this forms the balance. And it just isn't here. We got a church, a little church over here in England. Why? Because Caleb Miller penned his own money to go over there because they're watching on the website, stay with that family, send them everything that we've got. We got two in Africa. We got one in Holland. We got them all across the United States. Why? Because when you have a balance, it's what God uses. And you form that balance. Yeah, a church needs to have a balance, but the church will only be balanced as the individuals in that church are balanced. Most churches are like that movie Young Frankenstein. Remember that movie? When they made that Frankenstein and they sent that hunchback guy to get the brain for it and he picked up and he said, what, and they turned into a monster. And he says, what brain did you get? He says, I don't know. I just got one that had a guy's name on it. And he says, what was his name? And he says, I don't know. Some guy named Abby Normal. (laughs) Got an abnormal brain. That's what most churches have a problem with. You got an abnormal brain, Abby Normal. And giving to the poor. Now, there's two aspects to this, and it has to be formed around a balance. In Matthew chapter 25, you find in verse 31 through 40, a great story of somebody caring for the poor and the needy. And I know doctrinally it's the tribulation period. I get that. This is the great judgment of the nations. He talks about the judgment of the separation of the sheep and the goats. I understand that. But in the story, uh, Jesus says to these people, I was hungered and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And they said unto Jesus, when did we do? We didn't do that. We didn't do that to you. When did we do all these things? When did we see you hungry, Lord, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked? And he says to them in the next... He says down, down through there, he says, And the king answered and said unto them, Inasmuch as ye have done it to the least of my brethren, ye have done it to me. Amen. You know what? I get it. Doctrinally, that's talking to the Jew in the tribulation period. But I am telling you, Jesus always had a love for the poor. And I'm just telling you. And inspirationally, he's always taken care of the poor all through his ministry. And he cared for them. And, you know, and I'll tell you why. Because he understood what it meant to be poor. He left the aristocracy of heaven and came down to be a man. He told us in the Gospels that when a guy wanted to follow him and he says, hey, I don't have any place to sleep tonight. I don't have any food in my pack. I don't have any of these things. If you're going to follow me, you better count the cost. And I'll tell you something else. When he came down from the glory of heaven, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you? Do we really understand the grace? We say, oh, the grace of the Lord Jesus. You know, he saved me. No, 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 no. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. that Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became Poor. That ye through his poverty might be rich. You only got the riches in Christ Jesus today because he came down and gave it all up and became poor. He understands the poor. And now that we have all the riches of Christ Jesus, you know, we need to take care for him, the poor. And I'm telling you right now, if Jesus Christ walked this earth today, He wouldn't be in, He wouldn't be with Joe Olstein this morning. He wouldn't be in the mega churches across this city. You know where he'd be? I'll tell you where he'd be. He'd be down on the Paseo. He'd be down at Tenth and Grand. He'd be down there where the down and outers are. So we do it today because that's what he asks us to do for him. And that will form for any church who understands that they need to have a balance. That'll be a very important balance, and I'll talk about why in a moment. You know, Today, the head of the Roman Catholic Church is Pope Francis. And I'm certainly not pro-Catholic by any stretch of the imagination. I stand by my my guns in the Bible that it's Satan's church with Satan's Bible. I get it. But I want to tell you something about this guy. Uh, He is not a favorite with the Roman Catholic hierarchy. He really isn't. Uh, When he became Pope, uh, he didn't want to wear the big white robe and the gold. He wanted to wear his little clothes he did when he was wherever he was when he used to minister to the poor. Uh, he actually wanted just a little one-room apartment. He didn't want to live in the, in the Pope play 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 uh, uh you know Playboy mansion. He didn't want that. He wanted just his little one studio room apartment. And he wanted to be close to the poor. You know, they have these great possessions, and he rides in the Pope you know, and, and the crowds will come around and they they got diseases, they got leprosy, they got all these things. He'll stop the whole thing, get off and hold them and kiss their babies and be with them. That, that's not what the Roman Catholic Church is really all about. This guy is, and he's dying and going to hell. And yet you got God's people who won't walk across the street to give something to the poor. And he's lost on his way to hell. I remember a couple of years ago, we were down at Restart, And, uh, you know, where the park is out there, and I was out there. There was some other groups out there, and I I, I got to know those people pretty well. And and all of a sudden, I'm sitting there, and looking around the corner down here comes two big charter buses. I mean, they were like you would go, you know, I mean, they were expensive buses. And they pulled up on this side and sat there for a moment. Then the doors opened up, and two armed guards got out, one of each bus. And walked up there and by the door and stood. And then all these people filed off this bus, ran over to that fence over there, and quickly started to put gloves and hats and tie them to the fence up there uh, for the homeless to come and get for Christmas. And then as soon as they were done, I mean, they're guarding their children like you're in pedophile, you know, uh, terror, and, they're, and, they're, and they're all looking around and they're putting these up. and as soon as they were done boy they were back on that bus so fast they're armed guards armed guards see that's the way they, they look at it that, that's a nice warm feeling that they want to have that they do at Christmas time hey, what about July you say well it's so cold what about when it's 102 in Kansas City down in the inner city you kidding me? We used to go get groceries at the highest fee in Lee Summit there. We don't go there anymore. But anyway, I remember one time that this big, no, 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 on high V. I I mean, we just, it's just the fact that it's easier to go to the one in Raytown. I mean, there's people shot at Raytown all the time. You don't want to miss those things. <clears throat> so, uh, so they had this big truck out front and it was one of the big mega churches, and I won't tell you which one it is, but one of the big mega churches, and they had people out there that were passing out bags that when you went and got your own groceries that you'd put some groceries and buy it and bring it out to them. But long story short, they wanted to load up this big tractor-trailer truck with food for the homeless. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know and, 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 and I get that. But, but it's all about, you see, they'll do that. It's all about getting that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling, but there ain't no way they're going down and feed those people. I mean, it's just, it, it just I, I get it. You know, dealing with the poor can be, a, can be a hard job. I suggest to you that you go get the, go get the biography of biography and have it back at the bookstore of, of Mary Slessor, who back in the 1880s, she was a single female missionary to, 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 to uh, Nigeria, and she worked her whole life with the poor. Better yet, get the one on Mary Reed, who lived around the turn of the century. And she was a missionary to the lepers in India. She spent her whole life. You know, I, 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 I get around a lot on Restart because I, I get, do my thing, but then I got to make sure you guys got everything that you need. But I enjoy watching you guys at work. We got a group that goes down there at 13th and Cherry. We got a group that works the library. We got a group that works along the river we got a group that Will's team that I'm never sure where they're at, but they're in the inner city someplace. And then, of course, we have Restart Itself, the facility, which, you know, we're not going down there today. And, and, and I watch you. I really do. You know, I remember a time when down along the river, it was one of the most amazing things that you ever saw. There was whole cities down there. And you would walk into those woods along the river and there would be log cabins, there'd be tents built into huts, there'd be all these, and there'd be 30, 40, 50 people living in those communities. It was like going back in the 1850s. And you'd look over the trees and there was the skyline of Kansas City. And I remember that we actually went down there and held church services. Every Sunday after here, you guys would go down and they'd come out and you'd preach and you'd, you'd tell them. Many of them were drunk. Many of them were you know, uh, but they, they all were homeless and they all had nothing. We stopped it because someone got killed down there and then the police went down with bulldozers and bulldozed the whole thing away. So it's very sparse now and it's not like it was down there. But I will say this, the guy that got killed, you guys went into Christ a week before he got killed. I mean, it's an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing. I, I watched down at the, it's a bus stop, you know, that big bus stop. you got a captive audience down there. And I like watching you guys work down there. I, I watch one of our gals, you know, they wait for the bus, and one of the gals was sitting there with a lady who had a little baby, and they, she was talking to her and playing with the baby and telling her about the Lord. I watch sometimes they smell terrible, they look terrible. Certainly, they're the outcasts of society, no question about it. I get it. And, you know, I I watched a lady last time we were down there walking around and she obviously hadn't bathed for a long time and she had blood all on the seat of her pants where she was going through her monthly cycle, had no way to stop and the blood was just soaking through. And you look at that and you think to myself, oh, boy, I don't want anything in that. You know what, I watched one of our ladies go up and put her arm around that lady and tell her about the Lord. It's tough. I get it. It's hard. And I know the average Christian, well, he has a heart, they have a heart attack. Not me, brother. Oh, I know not you. Because we all forget how absolutely putrid we were the first time God put his arm around us. We're out of balance. And 99% of God's people today wouldn't walk across the street to give to the poor. I get it. They're not your social circle. I understand that. Well, it was Jesus' social circle, and I I, want to be where he would be. Years ago at the Canton Baptist Temple when I was just a young guy, we had a guy in that church. everybody called him Crazy Lou. And Lou obviously was not, he, he, he was mentally challenged, but he was a nice kid and he really loved the Lord. Everybody kind of made fun of him. Everybody kind of tolerated him. He never caused any problems. He was just very odd. And one night after Bible study, Mark and, uh, Mel and I are walking out the back door And here's Lou. There was brush across the thing there. And here's Lou down on his knees with his head in this bush, just like this. Mel said, Lou, are you okay? And he didn't say anything. And he says, Lou, are you okay? And he went over and put his hand on his shoulder and Lou came out and he had a dead sparrow in his hand. And Mel says, what are you doing, Lou? And he says, the Bible says that not a sparrow shall fall from the ground. But the Lord doesn't know it. The Lord was just here. And I want to be here too. You know what we need in our churches? We need some more crazy loos. I mean, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Last part of the verse says, but he that hideth his eyes shall have many a curse. I get it doctrinally. Again, that's the people in Matthew 25 that turn their eyes and don't help the Jew. But boy, is that ever God's people today. I mean, if you don't look at them, then they're not there. Now, the second reason why I do it is a personal thing. Uh, And it's a vital part, I understand, of our church balance, but it's also a vital part of my Christian balance. Because it'll form a balance not just for our church, but for for each, each one of us. For me, it's a balance of thankfulness. For how good has God has been to me, and how how you know that how my own world would be a shambles if it was not for the grace of God and what He's done in my own personal life, and you know what I can't speak for you, but I never want to forget that I never do, and I'll tell you something else: I never want to take all that God has given me for granted, and like I said earlier, you can get so many blessings of God, get the Word of God so much that you actually Become a Goodyear blimp, and you lift off planet Earth and lose sight of what's going on around you. I never want to forget who I really am. Dealing with the poor and needy will keep me humbled to God and all His goodness to me. I, I never want to lose sight. I never, I never want to read the press releases. I, I, I just want to, I, I know who I am, and I never want to lose sight of that. I want to keep my perspective. I never want to hide my eyes from the poor because I know that when I do that, I'll lose sight of who I really am. You know, I may not be the homeless guy on the street this afternoon that you give a bottle of water to or a hot dog, but I want to be honest with you, I should be. Amen. I deserve to be. Amen. And so do you. Amen. And for me, it's a balance of the fact that, that between, you know, a good balance and a, and a, and a right perspective. The mark of an unbalanced church, and for me personally, an unbalanced child of God in my own life would be hiding my eyes from the poor. Proverbs chapter 31 is that great chapter on the church, the, like the virtuous woman. And what an incredible chapter that is. It's a picture of what not only the church is, but what we should be. And it says in verse 20 that she stretches out her hand to the poor. Yea, she reaches forth unto the poor, to the, her hand to the needy. She just doesn't reach out to them. She touches them. And a lot of times we don't want to do that because, honestly, we just forget what we looked like the day God first met us. You know, and I don't want to, I don't walk outside on a freezing night, take the dogs out or whatever I'm going to do, and not think about those people sleeping out there in the park and not thank God for what he's given me. I, I don't get in my bed at night and pull the covers up and, and, and not thank God for all that He has given me, knowing that there's many in Kansas City that have no bed tonight. It's easy to take those things for granted. It's easy to get in that mindset where we kind of get that entitlement. You know what I'm saying? I don't sit down and eat a meal and not know that God provided that for me, and in, in this town there's many people tonight with nothing to eat. I've watched them in McDonald's where they go through the trash to pick out what somebody didn't all eat because they're hungry. I, I don't look at my kids and my grandkids and not thank God that so far, to the third generation, my family is all serving God with me. And I thank God for that every day of my life. Now, I'm only to the third generation. I'm a little worried about Macy. She may turn out to be a terrorist, but. <laughs> I mean, I'm set for life. One of them wants to be a doctor, <clears throat> the other one wants to be a a, a, a veterinarian. There, take care of my dogs. And what's the third? Maddie wants to be a nurse. <clears throat> I got a book called Enemas One Hundred and One. I want you to look at and read. Just kidding. I, I I never want to take what God has given me for granted. And I'll tell you what, when I see those people out there and I talk with them, I I know they can be very crusty. They can be very unthankful. They can be very dirty. They can be very entitled. And a lot of ways, they're just like me. And I never want to forget that. That keeps my personal life, my balance. And I never want to think that, you know, I'm, I'm too good for that. And uh, it, it, all, it all goes back to the book that God gave us, yes, keeping that balance. And then the last part of that verse in 20, or the last verse here is, when the wicked rise, I'm going to shift gears here for a moment. When the wicked rise, men hideth themselves. But when they perish, the righteous increase. Now, again, doctrinally, keeping our balance. All this is dealing with the tribulation period and the Antichrist. He rises for seven years in the tribulation period, last three and a half in particular. And, uh, he, you know, he persecutes people, and people are hiding, especially the Jews, Matthew 24, Matthew 23, Matthew 25. And uh, he perishes at the second coming of Christ, and then the increase that it's talking about here will be the millennial reign of Christ when Christ sets up his throne. Historically, I mean, the Bible's filled with people like this. You got Saul. You got Absalom, you got Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and all the Boam boys, you got Ahab, you got Pharaoh on the other flip, Pharaoh, Shenacherib, and Nebuchadnezzar. But inspirationally, it will be aimed at, as far as I am concerned, every preacher and every Christian in the 20, 21st century, um, in the Laodicean church period that, that we live in. And for sure, in Christianity, the wicked men have risen today, men who deny. Uh, the very book that God has given us. You know, our modern-day scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, the men who deem themselves smarter than God, men who with the Laodicean mindset and the teachings have destroyed the very doctrines that once made Christianity such a powerful force. Men who, like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day, have destroyed the simplicity of Christ, like this talked about in 2 Corinthians 11.3. Bible is not a hard book. Man makes it hard. Salvation is the simplest thing on the planet. Man makes it hard. Man spends his whole life taking the simple things of God and making them complex so people can't figure it out. And pastors today and God's people today alike will do absolutely nothing about it. It blows my mind. Edmund Burke, not one of my favorite guys that I read, but I've read a few of his things. And he was a Anglo-Irish statesman from back in the 1729. I think he died in 1797 or something like that. He's not one of my favorite guys that I read, but he said something one time that I, I have seen quoted many, many times, and I think that it is so true, and it's become one of my favorite things every time I see something. And he said one time, evil triumphs. When good men do nothing. And boy, that is so true. For me, my balance as a pastor, my understanding, is to realize that in every church period of church history, in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3 lays out seven for us, that in each period the body of Christ had to deal with a doctrinal issue that had come up that threatened Christianity. In the early church at Ephesus, it was the resurrection itself. When Smyrna came around, it was then the virgin birth, Council of Nicaea, deity of Christ. When Pergamos came up, it was the you know uh, baptism regeneration. When Thyatira came into its its own, it was amillennialism and postmillennialism. When the Sardis church period, it was eternal security. And when the uh, Philadelphian church came into being, it was Calvinism and hyperdispensationalism. And today in the Laodicean church that we all live in, it's simply, do you have the authoritative words of God in your lap this morning? Did God know what he was talking about through a King James 1611 authorized version? The only Bible in the world that when God wrote it, he wrote it against two people groups. Roman Catholic Church, Popish Persons, and the Dedicatory, and then Conceited Brethren, the Calvinist of their day. Only Bible on the planet. You know, as a pastor, again, speaking for myself, I don't presume to speak for anybody this morning but me, I have one overall primary goal as a pastor, and certainly as a Christian. And that overall, and I know there's a lot of things that I have to do underneath this, but first and foremost is taking my stand for the Word of God declaring the words uh, in the, to the world in these last days that we have a complete, perfect copy of God's Word. And, you know, and, and my enemies are, are are many. They really are. And that's okay. The more, the merrier. And I'm not even talking about the cults like the Ws and the Mormons. I put them aside. They're not even worth messing with. But the enemies of a Bible believer day will be what people who call themselves Christians really are, just like it was in Jesus' day. You have the neo-evangelicals who don't believe anything about God or the Bible. They're just a worthless gray mass of nothing. They've dumped the rapture. The, most of them are, are Calvinists. They've done everything they can to destroy the Word of God. They laugh at people who believe the Bible until they would come to a Thursday night Bible study. The second group is the neo-Orthodox, where the, where the neo-evangelicals took the, wanted to take the common... It starts around 1900. They wanted to take the common Bible out of the hand of the common man and put it back in, in the scholarship world. That's what they wanted to do. Then you had the Neo-Orthodoxy group, which starts around the same period of time, comes out of Europe. Their game plan is to take the Bible and Christianity, and as society changes, the Bible and Christianity changes. That's why we have gays in the pulpit today. That's why we have all the things that we have that in the Bible, if you study it and read it, God was against. That's that mindset. Then you have the charismatic movement. And, of course, they know nothing about the Bible. They are absolutely, totally out of their mind and have absolutely no truth, even in a sliver. And then, of course, to me anyway, I think the greatest enemy, I mean, I can understand all those guys, the greatest enemy is the Baptist churches themselves, pastors who stand in that pulpit every day and tell their people that they don't have a Bible they can trust. I'm going to tell you something. When it comes, I told you this Thursday night, when it comes to the Bible and His Word and your stand for it, you guys ought to be like John Knox. John Knox was the, they said about John Knox that he never feared to face a man. He stood before Bloody Mary, who was the most godless, perverted queen that England ever had that killed every Bible believer and tried to bring England back under the Roman Catholic Church uh, after they broke with Henry VIII. And she was the most wicked queen that they ever had. And she killed more Bible. believers was an old John Knox stood there and pointed his finger in her face and nailed her and lived to tell the story. And they all have one terrible heresy in common. They will all take from the common man God's common Bible and replace it with a Bible that is worthless. And today for me, it, it just comes down to taking my stand for the Word of God. I can't speak for you, but I would hope that you would want to take that same stand amongst a world of Christian apostasy and us not putting our tail between our legs and running from the fight. God's people are gutless today. They're absolutely worthless. If I had to go into a real war battle again like, I, like the spiritual one, I'd just as soon have a good Sherman, German shepherd in my foxhole than most of God's people. And the verse says, when evil men arise... God's people hide. You'll hide your eyes from the poor, and then you'll hide your eyes from the truth of the Word of God. And God's people today are weak, and they're cowards. You haven't got any idea why you believe what you believe. Somebody told you to believe it, you want to believe it, but if you had to be put on the spot and open up a Bible and explain why you do believe it, you couldn't do it. You're so afraid to offend somebody. You tiptoe around their heresy. Somebody that may be your friend or somebody that you don't want to be put in a category of a troublemaker. So you take the, you take the apostate mindset, well, we'll just agree to disagree. And you'll tiptoe around their heresy and you'll say, well, you know, uh, you, uh, you have what you believe and I have what I believe. For me is the Elijah principle found in 1 Kings chapter 18. You hack them to pieces. Read it sometime. Ain't nobody agreeing to disagree there. Ain't nobody saying, let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya. He knows what he believes. He knows what God has told him, and he knows who the enemy is, and he doesn't run from them or hide from them. Taking God's stand against the men who want to destroy Christ's body, his church. Guys who want to take Baptist off the name of their church because they don't want to be associated with Baptists because they think Baptists have a bad reputation. Well, so you become an evangelical that also has a bad reputation. What in the world are you going to associate with if somebody isn't going to not like it? I'm a Baptist, I will stay a Baptist, we'll never take Baptist off our name. You know why? Because there's two names in the Bible or in history. That were given to us by our enemies. One was the word Christian in Acts chapter eleven, and the other one was the word Baptist because we got it from our enemies. Because we wouldn't submit ourselves to infant baptism for salvation, I'll keep it. I'll keep it. I may have to get up and explain I'm a Baptist, but I know, but I'm not a weird Baptist. But I'll do that. No, you'll forsake the preaching of the word of God and you replace it with a stool and a laptop and your silly little teachings about the Bible. you replace the power of the Holy Spirit of God with your education, and you'll spend half the time uh, correcting what God said in His Word and gave to His people. You don't build people. You build buildings and monuments to yourself. You've lost the power of God in, 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 in any kind of reality of preaching. So you keep your image by bringing in the world and all the, all the music and the booze and the lifestyle that the Bible clearly, uh, and you have a form of godliness. But in reality, you defy, you defy the power thereof, deny the power thereof. You're the church of Revelation 3, 16 that has no candlestick, hence no light from the Holy Spirit of God. You're the church in Revelation 3, verses 15 and 16 that makes God sick and He spews you out of His mouth. You're the church of the closed door in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where it tells you that Christ Himself is knocking on your door to get back in your church because you kicked Him out, closed the door, and locked it. You're the church that has rejected the truth of God's Word and now has to follow all the heresy of the false teaching of the Christian apostates. And you've lost the great teachings and the truths of God's Word that our church was built on. You've lost your perspective. You're the church of Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. You're the church that's lost your way. You've lost every aspect. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing... And knowest not that thou art wretchable, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou shouldest be clothed, and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And that appearing there is the judgment seat of Christ. And anoint thine eyes with eyes that thou mayest see. You think you're rich, but in absolute you're destitute. You think you can see, but in reality you're blind. And you are that evil man that has risen as God's people were afraid to take their stand against you. And evil triumphs when good men do nothing. Well, let me tell you something. As far as I'm concerned, going back to 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, when Israel was in all the problems she was in, I can tell you this, as far as my church is concerned, there's still 7,000 men have not bowed to need a baal who will take our stand with the book and the word of God. You see, the prophet Jeremiah saw your day long ago. He saw what evil men like you did to his nation. And he prophesied about it and against you and what you will do when you rise to power in the New Testament Christianity, just like you did to the nation of Israel. He said in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, Woe unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastors, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people, you have scattered my flock, you have driven them away, you have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith the Lord. That's the church today. Jeremiah saw that in his own nation, and he also saw it in the New Testament church, and he spoke prophetically about it. He warned us about you and showed us who you really are in verses sixteen, seventeen, and eighteen. And he said, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart, and not out of the mouth of the Lord. They say still unto them that despise me, The Lord hath said, Ye shall have peace, and they say unto every one that walketh after their imagination of his own heart, No evil shall come upon you. They'll teach you to drink. They'll teach you to bring in the worldly music. They'll teach you to do everything that the world does and then tell you that God's okay with it. For who hath stood in the counsel of the Lord and hath perceived and heard his word, who hath marked his word and heard it? And he clearly told us that you're not from him? but you destroy his church and his people. He said in verse 21, 22, and 23, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. And if they had stood in my counsel, that would be the word of God, if they had stood in my counsel and have caused my people to hear my words, You notice it wasn't the original manuscripts here. It wasn't some translation. It was his words. And the authority question today is, do you have those words? But if they stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then thou should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. I am a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off. That's what they try to get you to believe. They try to get you to believe that if the lights were dim and the smoke was thick and the music was loud, God couldn't see what went on. Then he says in 29, 30, 31, and 32, therefore God is against you. He's against you and your message that brings the filth of the world with your music, your preaching, your Christian counseling, your weak teachings. And he says, verse 29, It's not my word like as a fire. You see, any preacher that gets up in the pulpit and doesn't have as a goal that Sunday to light a fire under you, he's not doing his job. Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer, and breaketh the rocks in pieces. You know what God's people need? They need a fire lit under them and a hammer busting up what they got in life. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophet, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. There it is. There's somebody who simply steals the word of God right out of your lap. Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, He saith, obviously when God didn't say it. Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies. And by their lightness, yet I sent them not, nor commanded them; therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. Ninety-nine percent of the churches in Kansas City and around this world, the people are going to. today, He just told you, there's absolutely no profit in them for those people. And the Bible says that God's against them, and I'll tell you right now, so am I, every day and every way, to expose what it is that you may find somebody out there today. That still wants to hear the true word of God and wants to believe it. Amen. We'll take our stand and we'll stand on the book. It's our truth. The monarch are the books. The book that if you put every other piece of literature that any man had ever written, and I read one time that if all the literature that man has been had written in all of history was put in one pile, it'd be a it'd be a pile that would cover the state of Nebraska and go out past the orbit of the moon, which are 250,000 miles. And if that was possible today, I'm telling you right now, you could judge everything that was written in those books in the light of one book. This book. The monarch of the books. We will stay separate, separate from the world while you build your whole church around it. We will build families. We will take men and women and young singles and young teenagers and we will teach them to carry the truth till the Lord comes back. We will not hide when evil men rise. Amen. We will not put our tail between our legs and close our eyes to what's going on around us. We'll use the pulpit as God intended that the pulpit to use, to preach truth. And through that preaching is where men's lives get changed. We know our stand. We understand that we're in the seventh period of church history, the Laodicean church period, which means rights and justice of the people. We understand all that. And we understand today that our stand on the authority of the Word of God is what God has called us to do in our final fight. I often think of some of the great things in history that really are a picture and a model of what, where we're at today. I think of the Battle of Thermopylae where the Persians under Artaxerxes were coming to take the Sparta and the Greeks and try to defeat them. And the Greek Empire was kind of in a disarray and and they didn't, wasn't prepared and they found out that there was over 70,000 Persian troops landing at a shore that was going to come in and destroy Sparta, and then move on into Greece. And they didn't know what to do. And the personal guard of one of the men there, one of the generals, had 300 Spartans. And those 300 Spartans went down to the sea, right before the sea, there was a little town there and a pass on the mountains called Thinopoli. It was a pass so narrow that an army could only come through it two men at a time. You could not move 60,000 people through it. They held up a defensive there, and for weeks, they held back 60,000, 70,000 Persian soldiers, just 300 Spartans. And they held that line of that pass there that they couldn't get through. The only way they finally got through was they got betrayed, and they found another pass that went up around the other side and came in and cut them off and they surrounded them. And those 300 Spartans, those 300 Spartans stood there, circled by 60,000 enemy. And Xerxes sent a message to them, and they said, We admire your valiant stand, we admire your courage. We have killed many of you, and you have killed many of us. And on this day, let there be no more bloodshed. Lay down your swords and we will let you live and go home to your families. What was left of the Spartans sent back a message and said, you want our swords? Come and get them. There's a little patch that's been put out over the last couple of years with a Spartan helmet on it, two cross swords with Greek that simply says, Come and take it. That ought to be the motto for every Bible-believing child of God on this planet. The world wants to take what you have. They want to break you and bust you. They want to destroy your family. They want to take the very book from you that God gave you, the book that men like the Waldensians and the Albigensians and the Huguenots and the Policians and the Nestorians down through history knew was God's Word. And when the Roman Catholic Church of their day persecuted them for that book. They gave their very life and blood that you and I today might hold that book in your lap. And today they want to take it from you just like they wanted to take it from them. You've got two choices. You either hide and put your tail between your legs or you stand and fight. You want my book? You want my Bible? Come and take it. That's the cry today. And Proverbs chapter 28 was a great chapter. It laid out so many principles, and it ends with the principle of us taking our stand for the things of God and not being a coward, not turning our eyes from what is going on around us. And in these last days, men and women, take your stand, get some courage and some guts, and take your stand against the very people who want to take that Bible from you. Every head bowed and every eye closed.